So join me this morning as we read God's word. This is Acts uh, 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Let's be seated. Let's talk about God's word now. To think through it together. To think God's thoughts after him. This is one of the beautiful passages that tells us a little bit and gives us a little bit of insight of how the inner workings of the church happened, how they came about. Something that's important for us to know as we read it is a simple uh, Bible study tool for reading a historical book. And it's this. There are times that, it's, that, that uh, in a historical book you can say this is prescriptive. It's something that's prescribed for every believer to do. And there are things that are simply descriptive. That describes what the early church did, but it's not something that's incumbent on us. Not something that we have to obey. That's an important Bible study tool I want you to be aware of. Descriptive versus prescriptive. There are some things in this passage you think, okay, there are things that, that we as believers should be doing, and then there are other things which we don't necessarily need to do. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this passage together. The focus of, of this mini-series that I'm going uh, to do the next two weeks is small groups. I want you to think about small groups. And in fact, we have a slide. I don't know if the slides uh, came in. or I don't know we had a There it is. Better Together. Right? When we had the Mansfield Family Fun Day we, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, we uh, had these t shirts on. Life is better together. Life is better together. Is that true? Is that just a Mansfield Bible church thing or is that a biblical thing? In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, I know you're getting ready to say that one. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9, it says two are better than one. Two are better. I mean, think about just that little simple phrase. Two are better. Life is better together. Two are better than one. And then it gives us the reason why. And then it says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one. I think that, that that idea of two are better than one, that idea of together is going to dominate this passage for us today. Because you have several phrases in there, and I'm going to kind of jump around the passage a little bit today because I want you to see the bigger picture. So many times we just jump right into verse 42, we give the four things that are there and go, okay, now let's pray, right? I want, us to, I want you to see this bigger context. Context, when you're doing Bible study, context is crucial. It helps you to understand something. If we just pull something out of its context, sometimes kicking and screaming, uh, we'll go off in a direction that may not be where the text was going. And so I want us to think of this idea of together. It says fellowship. It says they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the koinonia, the breaking of bread, and prayers, those four things. But notice in verse 44, and all who believed were 
together. In verse 46, attending the temple together. Three times in the passage, this idea of together, two times actually using the word together. It caused me to go through the book of Acts. I began to wonder, how many times does Luke use just the word together to talk about and describe the church? There are times where he describes it of other people in the passage, but in chapter 2, verse 1, the day of Pentecost arrives, they were all together in one place. And you begin to read through this, this term, together. And so I began to think about this idea of together versus not together. During this COVID season, we've seen a lot of not together. I've known, I, I've got, there are churches in Mansfield that didn't meet for 17 months. And you go, wow. That together idea was, and, and there are some that haven't been back yet. They're still online, which, you know, I praise God that they're being safe. Many, some of them are immune compromised and that kind of thing. And so that, that it's essential for us to, to not take this idea of together, not hear what I'm saying today and think, oh, well, I'm, I'm against all the people online. That's not it at all. That's not what I'm saying. But together is better. Together is what God intended. Together is drawing us not just in one place, but interacting. When I was uh, teaching school, I taught for two years. One of the things that we were taught in, in, in our education classes is this concept of parallel play. Have you heard that term, parallel play? Where, and, and some of you are teachers or had that, you know, they're shaking, you're shaking your head, yeah, I know that term, I know that phrase. Some of you are kind of going, what is this parallel play thing? You have little kids in a room, probably in the nursery, we have some of those going on right now. They're in the same room, they're playing with similar toys, doing similar things because they're in the same age group, but they're not interacting together. It's called parallel play. One's playing, the other's playing and it's parallel, but not together. Some marriages are like that. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? You have to intentionally think about working together or else you'll find yourself just parallel play. You're both kind of living your lives parallel. and You're in the same place, the same location. Geography doesn't change that. And you've got to intentionally go on a date, right? You need to plan those date nights uh, otherwise uh, those times together don't happen but then you got to plan the date nights without this thing this causes parallel play at the table doesn't it in a room you can have four or five people in a the room they're all doing this you're kind of going you know we could be anywhere in the world doing the same thing and so what we find is, is just because we have technology doesn't make us more connected. In fact, Generation Z, some of the studies have said that they are the most connected generation ever. And the lo most lonely generation ever. I mean, think about that. And the thing is, is there's this concept, and I can't remember the term for it, but basically that whips us. We've been whipped in our and at our age into that same mode where we have the same loneliness and the same great connection and lonely. We have social media, right? Man, we can be connected and you can get beat up on social media, can't you? And you find yourself hiding people and blocking people and 
defriending people. It's been happening a lot. And in fact, it's what's happening on social media begins to happen in real life. People are mean to each other on social media and now it's happening more in real life than I've ever seen it before, ever. It's like, wow. And it just pushes us further apart. There's a term called ghosting. I always like to learn new terms because, uh, in fact, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll come home and I'll, I'll just kind of try to casually slip in a new term in the conversation, right? Oh, yeah, the, uh, this person ghosted me. What is, what is, and, and, and usually what I get is rolled eyes from my wife, right? <laughs> okay, the term of the week. Yeah, okay, I get it. And so sometimes I try to do that in a message too, you know, and people, I see people kind of going, oh, wow, what's that? Uh, I remember when I first learned the term bling. Uh, <laughs> and people are surprised that I even use it. What? You know that term? This idea of ghosting where people just all of a sudden are a ghost. They no longer connect with you. you they don't return your phone calls, your texts, anything. It's called ghosting. And you don't know exactly why it happened. It just did. It's been going on a long time, but now there's a term for it. And so you think about that and you think, so it's easy to get our feelings hurt, easy to get pushed away, easy for us not to want to be around one another. We've got plenty of reasons to disconnect. We have to fight for together. We have to fight for together. In your marriage, fighting for together is worth it. In the church family, fighting for together is worth it. Because there's people in our world that would love to have what we have. People in Afghanistan today. I've been emotional all week thinking about them. I met a guy in Tanzania, a guy named John. I'll just leave it at that. He's working with Muslims in Tanzania. But he's also trying to get some people out of Afghanistan. He has connections. He's from Pakistan himself. And he's trying to get people out, believers out of Afghanistan. I started reading some of the things that are going on with these believers in Afghanistan. And it just breaks my heart. Um, some of the things that are going on is they're going door to door looking for believers and they know who some of them are in fact some have gotten a phone call I know who you are I know what you've done and we're coming for you can you imagine that phone call from the Taliban how you would feel and you would feel toward your family in fact one pastor or one person says I'm concerned for my life and especially for my family because of me If you have a Bible app on your phone, that means immediate death. They will shoot you on the spot. So imagine they come, they take your phone, and you know you're getting ready to die. To die. If you're a convert from Islam, which most of them are, uh, Sharia law says you need to be put to death immediately. One that really, a couple that really got me was Neighbors, in order to get in good with the Taliban, people that you're, are your neighbors that you cared about, you've known for all your life, 
in order to be in good with the Taliban are going to tell on you that you are a Christian. So you can't even go to some of your friends together with people that you've been together with for all your life. One that I haven't confirmed yet, but it said, you must put an X on your house if you have a daughter over the age of 12. And then they'll come and get her. If you don't put it on your house, they will kill all of you in your home. What would you do? Certainly wouldn't put the X on my house. Which means certain death for all of us. They want to eradicate the ignorance of irreligion. And so they're going to take your children, put them in the military, make your girls, your daughters marry some person they don't even know. And you think about those things and you think they long for together. They long for somebody. Can you imagine how alone you would feel in those moments? We as the church around the world need them to know that we love them and care for them, right? I've been talking to my friend John. What can we do? Getting a list of things that we can pray for for them because we are part, they are part of us. They are part of the body of Christ. We are members of one another. And so we reach out and we want to help. I asked him, I said, how much is it going to cost to get some of those folks out? About 400 bucks per family. I haven't figured out how I'm going to get him the money yet because he sends me some stuff. And I'm like, well, I can't send you that way. And I can't send it this way. And so I'm trying to figure it out because I want to help. And I know this guy. And I know he's got specific people in mind. He has 75 families that he wants to get out. There's about 10 to 12,000 people that need to get out. Some of the Afghans believers don't want to get out. They want to share Christ with those in their country. I'm blown away by that. One even said, pray for revival. Wow, what faith. I look at that and I am stirred by their heart. I am stirred by their, 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 their love for Jesus. And this isn't just kind of something in a, you know, a classroom where we discuss, oh, what about these people in this country? Or what about, I mean, they're living it. And I think we take for granted this idea of together, which they long to have. Just the encouragement of knowing they're not alone. Encouragement. We have to fight for together. Everything in our world is pushing us apart. Internet, we're well connected, but alone. We got to fight for together. And so when we think about this passage, the reason I bring that up in this way is because these guys were going through the same thing. Jesus had just died in the city of Jerusalem. And where did Jesus in Acts chapter 1 say to stay? For the disciples in Jerusalem, stay here till the Holy Spirit comes and you'll be my witnesses, right? And they were his witnesses in the city where he was killed. Talk about the courage they must have needed for those moments. And so when we read what they were doing, they were doing some amazing things that are the crucial things in the Christian life that we all need to be doing, whether we're in a small group. And I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a small group, get in one. That's where you're really going to get to know other people, where you're not going to be just showing up for church and kind of parallel play and leave. 
but you begin to interact with people and, and they're people that you know and they're people that you love and the people you care about. And even when you come here, even if you're not part of a small group, I want to encourage you, take some time to just hang around and get to know at least one other person. And for you introverts, you're like, don't know if I can do that. That's going to take a lot of courage and boldness. Yeah, God can give you the courage and boldness. Just one person. That's all I'm asking. Two or three minutes, tops, right? Now, for you extroverts, you know, that's not a problem. I, I don't need to tell you that. In fact, I probably need to tell you, uh, meet somebody you don't already know. In fact, one of the things that we want to do and encourage at Mansfield Bible, not only among our staff, and we've been working on it with our staff uh, and ourselves, is when the first 10 minutes after the service, meet somebody you don't know. And then you can hang around for the rest of the time with people you know and talk and, and, and hug on and all that. But get to know somebody. Reach out to somebody and encourage them. And what do we do as, as a church? What, do, what are the things that help build togetherness? Well, we see what they're doing. They're devoted themselves to four things. This is my outline here. Four things. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, I'm going to show you an illustration that kind of puts these four in perspective. This illustration is one that uh, when I first came to Christ, uh, I, was, I was shown, and it's been part of my life ever since for the last, I hesitate to say, 50 years. How can that be when I'm only in my 20s? I don't know. <laughs> but here you have this, the Navigators, who is a campus organization, kind of like Campus Crusade for Christ, who's now called Crew, uh, or InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Those are three, three of the major ones other than uh, uh, Baptist Student Mission. But uh, you have basically four things. Jesus Christ is the center, the central part of your life. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. He's the center of everything that we do. But then in order to communicate with, the, with him, we need the word and prayer. So there's the two vertical ones pointing up. And then the two that are going sideways, witnessing and fellowship. If you were to take the terms that we're using today, abide, belong, and impact. Abide would be the word of God and prayer. Fellowship would be belong, and witness would be impact. When you look at this passage that we have, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so the word. The fellowship, so there it is, fellowship. The koinonia is a Greek word that's used there. It's this idea that, that we're not just a social community, but we're, a, we're more than that. We're a social and spiritual community. That we have both of those elements. The breaking of bread which would involve spending time with one another around the word. So Christ as the focus, Christ as the center of our conversation and prayer. And you think, well, witnessing isn't in there. I want you to look at the passage a little bit bigger. We zoom out a little bit. Instead, of we're looking at verse 42. You back up and you look at the verse right before it. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What is that? Evangelism. What does it say at the end in verse 47? Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Evangelism. So the whole context is this idea of being invitational toward Jesus. 
So when we have communion together, the breaking of the bread, that's not just this idea of the vertical. It's also horizontal. When we share communion, the verse at the end, when we, we took this cup that I, that I shared with you is what? And by doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A proclamation. So it's, a, it's an evangelism as well as worship time. Anybody sitting around us, they expect me to say, Jesus rose from the grave. And then I believe, right? But when they see you taking communion, you're saying, I believe. I have already received Jesus as my Savior. And now I do this as an act of obedience because I've already put my faith in him and I'm a child of God. And so you realize, wow. So that idea of communion is both. And this idea of of our Christian life needs to have these four elements in them. With Christ as a sinner and then us obedient to the Lord. When you look at that illustration, you know that a wheel doesn't work very well if it's got a short spoke. Right? If you shorten one of those, you've got a flat. And so many in our Christian lives and so many times in my Christian life, I've got a flat. Because I find myself out of balance. I'm leaving one of them out. You can have small groups and they be very introverted. And there's times for that. Don't get me wrong. There's times where you just got to minister to the people in the group. But we all need to be invitational. We see that with this early church. They're being invitational. And we're told throughout the New Testament to, to witness. So that's something that's prescriptive. The word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. Prescriptive. Prayer, you see it all through the New Testament, is prescriptive. Fellowship is prescriptive. Obedience, prescriptive. Christ being central. And so when you look at this passage, you realize, okay, those things are prescriptive for my life. What about the fact that they were giving everything up? Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. <clears throat> makes you a little uncomfortable reading that, doesn't it? And you go, well, what was it they were selling? In chapter 4, in verse 34, it says, there, were not any, there, were, there was not any, a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They're selling their houses, they're selling land, they're selling their property. I mean, they're selling everything. Is that prescriptive? Is that something believers need to do? There are some people who would say that. Jim Jones was teaching that and took everybody, the whole church down to uh, South America and then they all drank the Kool-Aid, right? Is that what we need to do to be part of the, little, of the, of the church? Of the New Testament, it would be a New Testament church. In fact, we're not told we have to be a New Testament church. I mean, a first century church. We are supposed to be a New Testament church, not a first century church necessarily. And so you look at this and think, why did they do this? Because 1 Timothy 6, if you look at 1 Timothy 6, it talks about those who have a lot in this world. And you'd think he would say, uh, you need to give it all up. You need to give it all away. I mean, after all, Jesus asked the rich young ruler to give away everything he had, Right? Is he asking all of us to do that? 
In 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What? I don't expect that from Paul. To enjoy? I'm supposed to enjoy the stuff that he gives me? Yeah, absolutely. When you give a Christmas gift to your children, do you expect them to enjoy it or to give it away? Well, sometimes it'd be good for them to give it away, wouldn't it? But you gave it to them for them to enjoy. You want them to have fun with it. God gives good gifts to his children for us to enjoy. But then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So we are supposed to be generous. We don't have to give everything away. So why did they do it? Now think about the time frame that they lived in. In chapter Two, in chapter one, they're told, stay in Jerusalem, you get the Holy Spirit, you'll be my witnesses. Chapter two, they get the Holy Spirit and there is witnesses. And now they're supposed to share, as Acts 1.8 says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth. Man, they're loving Jerusalem. Man, it's great. 3,000's come to Christ day by day, added to their number, 5,000 by chapter 4, and it's just growing. And, and, and it talks about a multitude of people in, the, in Jerusalem. It's happening, and they're just loving Jerusalem. And Jesus told them, no, Judea, Samaria. Jerusalem's great. We love it here. No, Judea, Samaria. Oh, we love Jerusalem. This is great. We're, we're such great fellowship. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking bread and prayer. God goes, all right. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So persecution happens. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to some of them, oh yeah, Samaria, remember Samaria? In fact, it says, I love 8-1. So it's 1-8, and then 8-1 kind of gives you the structure of the book, part of the structure. And there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Oh, yeah. They were loving Jerusalem until the persecution happened, and now they spread out. We're supposed to reach beyond ourselves. We're supposed to be invitational. God has a world that he wants us to reach for him. And yet, what do we do during those times? What would we do in our small groups? If you gather together in a small group, you have the four essential things. You want to have the word of God, so read the word together. And you may say, well, I'm not very good with the word of God. Um, you don't have to be. God wants you to grow in it. When I was first a brand new believer, I knew nothing. I didn't even know where the books of the Bible were. Because the tradition I grew up in, we didn't use our Bible. We just used tradition. And we had the Bible, I mean, but it was in a little prayer book. You just read that. So I didn't know how to find stuff for myself. I didn't know all of what Scripture said. Because we didn't go every week, even at that. So how could I be devoted to the apostles' teachings? So read the Word. So I come to Christ, I'm leading a Bible study within a few months of after I come to Christ. I don't know half the answers to anything. Somebody would ask a question, I don't know, I'll find out. I go find out, come back the next week, okay, here's the answer. They say, well, what about this? I don't know, I'll find out. 
That's how I learned. And I'll tell you what, I was hungry for the scriptures because I had to have an answer for in a week. And so I spent time scouring God's word. I was hungry. Even myself, they would ask the question. I'm like, oh, that's a great question. I don't know. I'd like to know that too. Here's the thing that I learned. One, hunger for the word drives you to find out what God is like, to have his thoughts after God's thoughts. Romans chapter 12 talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? I read God's thoughts. In Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. So how do I get God's thoughts? I just read his thoughts. I read his word. It's God wrote a book. As Greg Lingle said, God wrote a book. He wants us to know his thoughts. Here's my thinking. Here's what I think about. Here's what's important to me. Here's how spiritual realities work. And so I was hungry for his word. And, and, and I realized, you know what? I went to seminary because I was so hungry. Because I thought, man, I, I want to know God's word. And, and I want to know it well. And, and, and I want to be able to teach people about what God's word says. And what I've found over the years is every time I find answers, I get more questions. And then I answer those questions. And then I end up with more questions. And there's an endless number of questions, right? Because our God is deep. It would bother me more if I could find all the answers than that there's mystery with God. And so I read the word, the, the, the apostles' teaching. I'm committed to that, devoted to that. But I also know for the last 2,000 years since the beginning of the church, since these events occurred, God's done pretty well without Greg Buckles on the scene to kind of help correct some folks, Right? His word is sufficient. Isaiah 55, 11, his word is sufficient. It will accomplish what he directs it to do. It will change people's hearts. I can't change people's heart. His word does. And so you're in a small group. Just read the word of God together. In your family, read a passage of scripture together and just talk about it. Have some spiritual conversations. In fact, a number of years ago, I, uh, when we were talking about, uh, did this series on the family, one of the things that we, we, I saw, because I did this, I just kind of researched it. You know, it's amazing what you can find on Google. There was a study done in Cornell University where they were talking about families that, that are, are uh, bonded together well. They eat at least three meals together. Three out of 21 meals a week, three together. They put down their cell phones and they have conversation. And the conversation is more than just pass the salt. Because that's usually what the conversations uh, Pass the salt. I need more meat. I, I need some butter. Whatever. You just have a spiritual conversation. How'd your day go? When people feel safe and you're not going to judge them. And it's going to be a positive conversation. And not a time where you're jumping their case. That's for later. This is an open time. 80% of kids will open up with their parents. During those three meals. They want to talk about their lives. If you have spiritual conversations and it's open and it's a safe place. The study went on to show in this, in this case, it was a secular study done by Cornell University. It wasn't a Christian study. They said the incidence of obesity are reduced when, when people are having positive, encouraging conversations. The incidence of anxiety, which we have in COVID times more than ever, mental health issues, right, are reduced. Incidence of using tobacco products, incidence of 
drug use, incidents of teen pregnancy all go down. Three meals a week. All the things, so many other things that in, the, in this list that they listed, less depression, less, I mean, so many things. And you think all these things are things we want and we have three meals a week. Can we do that? Absolutely. And have spiritual conversation? Absolutely. Just read part of the word and then just say, what do you think about it? In small groups, we do those same things. We spend time around God's word. We pray for one another. We show compassion to one another. And in fact, when I was looking at what does together mean, I'm going to show you a chart, and you're not going to be able to read through it all like I did first hour, but go ahead and show it. All the one another. Those are the one another passages. You might want to take a picture of that with your phone so you can look at it later. This is what together looks like according to God's word, that we love one another. That one's actually 16 times in there. Being devoted to one another, honoring, living in harmony, building up, being like-minded, accepting. There's forgiveness in the list. There's comforting one another, teaching one another. I mean, just all these different things. And then there's the negative side of things, which is the next one. It's a, sm a smaller list. Don't lie to one another. Don't pass judgment on each other. That's happening a whole lot in our culture today. Biting, devouring each other. Not slandering one another. Wow. That would cut back on social media, wouldn't it? <laughs> if we just chose not to slander one another. I look at that and I think, you know, God's word. Doing these things. When you look at this early church, they were devoted. They were committed to these things. To reading God's word to spending time together, making Jesus central, and praying, simply praying. The power of prayer. Something that I, I, I was reinforced in Tanzania as I shared before, where I was sharing how we had prayed for Tanzania 50 years ago in 1973, okay, 48, but praying for Tanzania. I had two guys holding up a National Geographic map and I just told them how we had laid it on the floor in, in 73 and we just laid, a number of us, about six or eight of us, laid around it every Saturday for a summer and we just prayed for the world. And I prayed for Tanzania. I prayed for Africa. And I got emotional because I realized that was almost 50 years ago and everybody in that room uh, uh, was either under the age of 50. There were so many young pastors there. There were some that were older, one, one that was a similar age as me. He was 63. Of course, I'm 28, but. <laughs> and I, he came to me emotional. I found out he was one of the bishops. In fact, he was one of the guys that if he wanted to get up, they handed him a mic. Nobody questioned, and he spoke whenever he needed to throughout the conference. His name was Jonah, or Yonah Suleiman. He came to Christ in 76, three years later, out of a Muslim home. And he said, I knew somebody was praying for me. Wow. 
All I can do is pray. No, that's the most important thing that we do is pray. And then everything else in ministry is cleaning up after God has already taken care of everything. So I want us to do something today. I want us to pray for the, for the believers in Afghanistan. They have some needs. Some of them need to get out. And we need to pray that they can get out. Now it's going to be underground. When I talked to my friend John, who I met in Tanzania, who's working with Muslims, uh, he said, we got 75 families we need to get out. And I said, I said man, we'll, we'll pray. We'll pray for those families. And so I want to pray for those 75 families that he knows, that he's trying to get out. Before he was trying to get visas, now he's just trying to get them across the border into Pakistan. That's where he's from. He's ministering in Tanzania, but he's originally from Pakistan. He has all these connections and he's trying to get these guys out. We need to pray for these families. We need to pray for the believers that decide to stay and to share their faith. Wow. We need to pray for courage and boldness that they will speak, that God will give them the words to speak. We need to pray for protection for those who are young, that, they, that God would preserve them, protect them, and keep them safe. And as one pastor said, pray for revival. We need to pray for revival. God's working, God's working in the Muslim community all around the world. There are more Muslims coming to Christ than ever before. And we need to pray that that continues, and especially in Afghanistan. There are needs in other parts of the world as well. I can tell you about Myanmar. I can tell you about India. I can tell you about other places where Christians are being persecuted. But right now, this morning, I want us to focus on the believers in Afghanistan. And I want to just take a moment, and, and we're talking about together. I want us to pray together as a body of believers. And so I want you to pray, not just by yourself. You can, if, the, if, that's, if you're more comfortable with that. But I want to encourage you, join with somebody Maybe somebody you're with, maybe somebody that's across the aisle. And just say, hey, will you pray with me? I want to pray. And I want us to just take a few moments here at the end of the service and just pray for those in Afghanistan. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to just sit where you're sitting, you can. If you want to walk over and stand, that's okay too. Just take a couple of minutes to pray and then I'll close for us in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you tonight or to this morning. And our hearts are broken for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Churches being decimated. Believers being sought out, much like in Acts 8.1. People losing their lives, maybe even as we pray for the cause of Christ. Lord, I'm humbled by that. And my heart's desire and our longing, Father, as a collective, uh, 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 as a bunch of believers here together, a collection of believers, together we lift up our voices and we pray that you would protect them, save them, preserve them. Father, I pray that their lives would challenge our own, that we would fight for together. Lord, I pray that you would watch over them, give them the courage they need to speak. Give them the comfort they need to be divided as families. Father, let them be aware of your presence with them. You said in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Father, I pray that they would be comforted by your presence in the dark valley that they find themselves in. Lord, I do pray that their lives and their testimonies, even their deaths, would bring about a revival and salvation of those who put them to death, much like Saul experienced. Where he was persecuting the church and you brought him to yourself. Lord, I pray that there would be those who come to you Stephen had to die for Paul to come to Christ. And Lord, we don't understand it. We long for a world where there's no more suffering or pain, and we know that's the next one. And so, Lord, we pray that while we're in this one, your will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we love you so deeply. Pray that you would hear our voices and listen. And Father, we pray that you would be with those who are suffering now. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.